This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, William J. Bernstein, author of so many fascinating books about finance, as well as being a practitioner, uh, efficient frontier advisors, runs a nice lug of money for ultra high net worth clients. What's so fascinating about Bernstein is how he began his career as a neurologist and then transitioned to being a financial theorist and and money manager and book author. Really a, an amazing um, career path and, and a fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my conversation with William Bernstein. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is William Bernstein. He began his career as a neurologist before becoming a financial theorist and investment advisor. He's the author of nearly a dozen books, many of which cover finance, including The Intelligent Asset Allocator, The Four Pillars of Investing, The Investor's Manifesto, and several others. He has also written several works of historical interest, including a splendid exchange all about global trade and the birth of plenty, as well as masters of the world. William Bernstein, welcome to Bloomberg. Happy to be here, Barry. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. You and I have been emailing for several years. Um, You have such a fascinating background and so unusual. Before you became a professional investor and an author, you were a neurologist. How long did you do that for, and, and what made you transition into finance? Well, I did it more or less for a third of a century, and I transitioned into finance and nonfiction writing uh, by virtue of the fact that I live in a country that doesn't have a functioning social welfare system, and so I had to uh, save and invest on my own. And I approached the problem in a way that I thought that any person with scientific training would do, which is that you examine the peer-reviewed literature, you read the basic texts, you collect data, you build models. And this got me to about the mid-1990s. And by that point, I realized that I had created something that was actually of use to small investors. And so I began writing finance. And as I'm sure we'll get into later in the the interview, one of the essential skills that any investor should have is a working knowledge of financial history. And I discovered that I enjoyed writing history, and so I segued uh, into that. Do you miss medicine at all? Uh, I miss the camaraderie. Uh, I miss dealing with the personal interaction with, with patients, which is golden. Uh, and And... You know, I, I miss the knowledge base and the competence that you exert. Uh, but the day-to-day practice of medicine does wear on you after a while. Uh, and there comes a point, I think, in every doctor's uh, career when, or at least most physicians' careers, when they decide to call it quits. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you did, you mentioned data. You assembled an asset class database before they were really available publicly. 
why did you go about doing this, and, and where did you get your data from? Uh, I, I basically begged uh, people uh, for for data, uh, and I just collected as many data series as I could, and I wanted to basically create what's called a mean variance optimizer, which is something that trades off um, return and risk measured as standard deviation or, or variance. And as much data as you can throw into that uh, is, is good. And so that was why I collected all of those data. Now, it turns out that that sort of exercise is a fool's errand, as I very quickly figured out. But it's still a useful skill, and it was a useful thing to do for small investors. What, why is it a fool's errand, other than the fact that the data is relentless and it never stops? It's a fool's errand because the output of a mean variance optimizer, that is, what are the most uh, efficient portfolios giving you the most return for the least amount of risk, or vice versa, giving you the least uh, risk for a given amount of return, is extremely sensitive to the data that you put into it. So, change the return of an asset class uh, by a percent or two in either direction, and it might completely dominate a portfolio, or it might completely fall out of the portfolio. These things started to come onto people's desktops uh, in the early 1990s, and when they tossed in historical data, what did they find? Well, they found that the most efficient portfolios were heavy in Japanese stocks uh, and <laughs> precious metal stocks. Uh, case closed. That's all you have to know. Right. Uh, and P- so, P.S. 1989 was the peak of the Japanese market, and it has yet to recover those heights since. It, exactly, and and what some wags refer, you know, to to a mean variance optimizer is as an error maximizer, just for that reason. <laughs> That's really great. So, so you create a website called the Efficient Frontier. What made you do this, and what made you decide to? Start putting all of your writings up in that one place. Well, I, I'll give credit to a man by the name of Frank Armstrong, uh, who is a financial advisor in Florida, uh, and he had done pretty much the same thing. He hadn't collected the data, but he was on the web before any, you know, with financial writing before anybody else uh, was. And this goes back to well before 1995. Wow! And uh, he encouraged me to to do it. I had. You know, 1995, after I completed the exercise, I wrote a book called The Intelligent Asset Allocator, my first book, and I approached a bunch of publishers with it. And of course, being someone with no experience and no credentials, you know, just a, just a manuscript coming in over the transom, it got rejected by 30, 30 publishers. And Frank told me, hey, just put the book on the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's basically how it took off. That was What was your first published book, if that wasn't your first book? That was it. That was it. What, so, so you eventually got a publisher for that? Yeah. The story is is that a man by the name of Robert Barker, who was a reporter for Business Week, actually came to interview me uh, in about 1998. Uh, and I told him the story, and I can still see the look on his face uh, as I told him the story about the 30 publishers. And he said, dear God, please tell me that one of them wasn't McGraw-Hill. And I said, well, yes, it was. And he Then owner of Business Week, now owned right. by Bloomberg LP. Right. And he hit his, you know, mock, sort of made a show of mock putting his face in his hands, <laughs> right. shaking his head. And then six weeks later, I got an offer from McGraw-Hill. He swears he has nothing, nothing to do with it, but of course, I, I didn't believe him. That- that's absolutely hilarious. So, so given the nature of um, data now being ubiquitous, 
How is this changing the world for for investors and for advisors? Well, uh, you know, I think it was Bernard Baruch who said that something that everyone knows isn't worth knowing. Uh, so that if everybody uh, has these data and can operate on them, uh, then they become nearly nearly worthless. Gene Fama makes the point uh, that everybody is basically working off the same database. You right. know, going back to basically basically 1926, uh, and it's, you, you have to be very cautious about different studies that are still using based on the same database, because I, I think it was Samuelson who said, we only have 200 years of history, uh, and that's not the complete, that's not the complete sample. I, I think Roger Ibbotson and the folks at uh, CRISP just backdated that uh, from 1926 back another 150 or so years. Not that there was a lot of data back then. It was um, a whole lot less companies and a whole lot less trading. But the full run of, of publicly traded U.S. companies, I think, goes back now to the early 1800s, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are people who've, who've, who've got probably far less uh, detailed uh, databases than, than Rogers. And of course, you can go, you know, you can look at English stocks and you, you can at least get uh, monthly and annual returns uh, all the way back to the mid 17th century. So, one of the things you, you've written, which I, I find quite intriguing, is that most returns are determined by the asset allocation of the portfolio rather than the asset selection. Explain that. Well, there are risky assets and there are risky, riskless assets, you know, Tobin's separation theorem. Uh, and that's, that's how I view portfolios, uh, is you've got the stuff that helps you sleep at night, uh, and you want to keep that as safe as possible, things with a government guarantee. Uh, that's, you know, that's next month's grocery money. Uh, and then there's the stuff which you're really not going to be touching or shouldn't be touching for decades, and that's the risky stuff. Uh, and that's really all there is to it. And I think the I think it is a bit of a mistake, not a serious mistake, but a bit of a mistake to mix the two. So junk bonds, for example, corporate bonds in general, I think are are a mistake. Anything where you're reaching for yield is not optimal. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, duration, I'm sort of neutral about. You can make the case, as, as you well know, that duration is certainly a risk, particularly in an inflationary environment. But when the excrement really hits the ventilating system, duration <laughs> is generally a good thing. Let's talk a little bit about physicians and why they're such terrible investors. My instinct is to say it's ego and uh, an excess of misplaced confidence. I think you're going to say something else. What? Why are doctors such bad investors? Well, you've you've hit uh, two of the high points, but the 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 major reason I think is that they don't take investing seriously. A physician, and I think most physicians uh, who are properly trained, will not treat so much as a cold uh, without a detailed review of the peer-reviewed literature, discussing things uh, with their their colleagues, uh, and you know. A, a, a thorough review of the database that's available to them. Uh, on the other hand, physicians, when they approach investing, will do it by, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or Kiplinger's. Uh, and the way I explain that to them is, you know, when you have to treat someone with a serious disease, you don't get your information from Psychology Today or USA Today. You go and you look at the most authoritative sources. Investing is exactly the same sort of 
sacred subject. It's a serious endeavor. And just like in order to do medicine, you have to start with the basics, anatomy, physiology, pathology, pharmacology. Uh, so too, when you approach investing, you should exert a similar amount of effort. You should learn about the theory of investing. You should learn about the history of finance and of investing. You should learn about its psychology. And lastly, you have to learn about the business aspects of investing, the people who are selling you the products. That sounds a lot like the four pillars of investing. Those are the four broad categories, theory, history, psychology, and actual business. The brown envelope is in the mail. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about that. How did you come to the conclusion that those four um, broad subject areas are what underlies each investor's uh, or should underlie each investor's theory, the four pillars that support their portfolio? Well, by observing the mistakes uh, that people make, and I found that people made four basic mistakes. Number one is they didn't understand market theory, financial theory, they didn't understand that there's a correlation between risk and return. It's the almost like the law of gravity right. in investing. And they didn't understand the theory of diversification. Uh, and they didn't understand basic portfolio theory, how you mix uh, assets. Secondly, they didn't understand the history. Uh, and that came home uh, during the tech bubble of the late 1990s, sure. when people had absolutely no idea that they were living through something that had happened many times before. Uh, there was a script to the movie, and if you read the script, you knew how the movie ended. Right. Uh, and of course, 95% of the people who, who invested in the 90s did not know uh, how that particular movie movie ended. There's a psychological aspect of investing, which you've alluded to. People become mm-hmm. overconfident. And it's not just that they're overconfident uh, about their ability to invest, but they're also overconfident about their ability to bear risk. They throw, If they're smart, they throw something into a spreadsheet. They throw a simulation into a spreadsheet, and they say, ah, here I've lost 30 or 40% of my money, but it only lasted for a brief period of time. I can ride that through. Um, But there's a big difference between doing that in real time and doing that in a spreadsheet. And the way I like to describe that is it's kind of like the difference between crashing an airplane in a flight simulator and doing it for real. Uh, Your your, your pucker factor, as pilots like to call it, uh, uh, changes. And then finally, uh, what you also uh, find is that physicians uh, and a lot of people really don't understand uh, the conflicts of interest that are inherent in the business, which is a very polite way of saying that the financial services industry uh, may be the country's largest repository of criminal activity. Well, let's hold aside the actual criminal activity and look at what's legally extracted in terms of fees. There was a big debate about the fiduciary rule um, coming from the last administration to this one, that people who were in the business of managing other people's money, argues the camp that I'm in, uh, should behave like doctors and lawyers and accountants where the client's best interest has to come first. But a lot of Wall Street thinks that that is problematic. It, it will impact fees. It will impact services. 
What's your view on the fiduciary rule? Oh, I think it's a superb idea, and I think it's only a start. I think the odds that you know we're going to see that in this administration, uh, <laughs> whether it lasts another two or six two or six years, is about the same as you and my starting at shortstop for the Yankees. Right. Uh, I got a good glove. Okay. Well, good. I, I'm 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 you know I'm short and I can't jump. Right. Uh, the rotator cuff. I, I won't be able to. Anyone who's fast will beat the throw. To first, but other than that, but but there's there's certain things that should just flat out be, you know, felonies. It should be a felony to place, for example, an insurance product within an, a retirement account. Okay. So wait, you don't think putting an expensive tax deferred annuity in a four hundred three b or otherwise tax deferred account? Is is uh, problematic? You you have an issue with that? <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm afraid I do. Uh, and you know, and I think there's certain products that should just flat out be be outlawed. I think that you know, uh, double and triple and inverse uh, ETFs uh, are basically a mathematically certain way in the long term of losing money. Uh, and the, the rationales that are given for their use are that, well, they're useful for short-term timing. Well, you shouldn't be doing that either. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, you know, short-term timing of the market is, is one of those activities that's up there with, with high-risk sex and, uh, and skydiving and visiting a Saudi uh, consular uh, facility. If you're, if you're an American journalist. Yes, exactly, sure. yes. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I will we'll move this to the back of the segment, but I was doing research on 403B for a column I was writing for Bloomberg, and I discovered this is your point is so well taken about history impacting how you think about things. As it turns out, the 403B, the retirement plan for teachers, for state workers, for anybody who works for a uh, a charity or nonprofit, it predates 401Ks by decades. And was passed by Congress to sort of, apparently, a number of, of charities were doing these all insurance-based products for their employees. They were inexpensive. They were tax-deferred. There was no other alternative. And Congress wanted to extend that to everybody, including people who worked in various churches. And that's sort of the history of 403B. And once the rules were changed and you you had this tax deferral built in and there was no longer a need for an insurance product, the momentum and the infrastructure around that didn't go away. And that's part of the reason we see 403Bs jam full of overpriced, inappropriate tax deferred annuities that are, are better off, you know, at nowhere, but certainly not in a, a tax deferred um, nonprofit retirement account. It, it's quite fascinating. I thought I would I would mention that. I just thought it was really interesting. All right, back to where we were. Um, so, have your thoughts and ideas changed about asset allocation over time, or was the original research compelling and you've you've stayed with where you began? A good couple of decades ago, I haven't changed my my point of view very very much. I mean, one of the sort of sardonic things I like to say about finance and how it's different from other serious fields of endeavor is that if you want to be a good doctor, you've got to internalize thousands of uh, medical articles uh, and pieces of research. The same thing with you know law and and all the case law. You you have to know. But I, I'm pretty sure that that any competent practitioner could put up a list of two dozen uh, peer reviewed articles that if you knew them. 
uh, you and you had fully internalized them, uh, you would know pretty much all that you have to know at a, at a practical level. So that's another way of saying there's not much new that comes out uh, every year uh, that's that's worth that's worthwhile. I mean, just the past several months, there was an article published by the Abu Dhabi uh, Investment Authority uh, on uh, share dilution and long-term equity returns. Uh, very important article because it showed that in the long term, it's dilution uh, of shares or its opposite net buybacks that determine returns. And so you can explain, for example, the really just awful returns of Chinese stocks. This is a, a market with, with with a lot of economic growth in back of it, uh, but the returns have been about the worst of of any large national market because of the dilution. Uh, on the other huh. hand, when you look at the winners over the past hundred years, you know countries like the U.S., Sweden, Canada, the U.K., Australia, South Africa, those have been the countries that have diluted their share pools the least. Hmm. Quite fascinating. So. Let's talk a little bit about the Efficient Frontier Advisors, LLC, uh, where you manage assets. What motivated you to shift from being a doctor to an asset manager? Well, when you publish finance books and you find yourself you know, quoted in, in national media, uh, people start asking you to manage money. It's it's that simple. Uh, and so... Uh, At I, a certain point, you just can't say no anymore? Pretty it's much. Like, yeah. yeah, pretty much. And some people do say no, uh, but I, I didn't. And I was fortunate enough to be in contact uh, with someone who already had an advisory service uh, up and running, a woman by the name of Susan Sharon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got together on the internet, uh, and we've been in business for the past uh, 21 years. Wow, that's quite interesting. So you describe this as a boutique investment advisory, um, intentionally designed for a limited number of clients. What what's the thinking there? Well, the thinking is that both of us have already had careers, uh, and we're at an age when we don't want to do anything uh, that isn't fun, uh, and it's not fun managing money for people who don't know anything about finance. So we restrict our practice to people who have a solid basis of knowledge of financial theory and of financial uh, history. Uh, we Wait, I have, to, I have to interrupt you there. So it's more than just, hey, you need a $25 million minimum. It's you have to understand what we're talking about and be familiar with this so you get what we're doing with your capital is 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 that what the approach is well sure because you know come 2008 2009 we don't feel like being woken up at 3 a.m. right right so uh, just in the broadest terms what sort of services are you providing for this client base it's it's investment management only Mm -hmm. Just pure. Uh, what about financial planning and taxes and estate planning and all that fun stuff? Yeah, the, the, our, our clients basically get that separately. I mean, of course, you know, when you talk about decumulation uh, and life cycle planning, of course, we're we're part of that because that's part of the investment process. But no, estate planning and insurance recommendations, we make very little of those. We leave that to other people. And you do not accept new clients. You're not out on a promotional tour to drum up business. No new clients for for Efficient Frontier Advisors. When did you stop accepting clients, and and why? Four years ago, 
Uh, and, you know, I, I like to joke back then that we were both pushing 70 with a short stick. Uh, and that stick is now is now well broken. Right. Uh, and so it's 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 we really don't feel like taking on new clients at our age. That's number one. And number two, it's not fair to be taking on a new client, uh, you know, when you're when you're both getting the maximal Social Security benefit. Gotcha. You've written about the role of investment advisors and and why they should be fiduciaries. What do you think uh, is the appropriate way they should be compensated? This is a, like a really big debate these days. Yeah, it really it really depends upon the level of expertise of the client. Uh, you know, there are some people who are absolutely uh, fine with, for example, an hourly fee basis, but those kinds of people have to be comfortable making their own transactions. Right. right? Uh, once, you know, you're in the model where uh, you're the one who's making the transactions, you've got discretion. I don't think that model works anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I just don't think, I just don't think that it does. Um, and, you know, there's, the, the new fee model that Jason Zweig wrote about uh, recently, just, yeah, just just last week, the uh, subscription of, of a subscription model, which I think I don't know. It sounds to me like a hybrid of of the two. So it depends on how much handholding you've got, but it gets to a more basic problem in our in our society, uh, which is that we live in a world where you're expected to do your own retirement. Uh, saving and planning and investing, and the analogy that I use is it's kind of like you step on the uh, the airplane to go to Chicago, and you go to, you you turn right off the jetway uh, uh, to go to your seat, and and the flight attendant says, "Oh no 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 no, you're turning left, you're flying the airplane." Right. Uh, and you know, everyone's become do-it-yourselfers, not because they want to, but it's been mandated. Yeah, and and it's a, I think it's a colossally stupid system. So, what's a better system? How should we actually have retirement saving and planning set up? Oh, I think that there are several systems that that, that work well, and I'm certainly not an expert on them. But the Dutch and the Canadian systems are well-funded at the national uh, level. Is that funded by individuals or by taxpayers, or are they the one and the same people? Basically by individuals. The Australian system as well. And, of course, the Australian system, you you have mandated savings rates that are now going to be well north of 10%. Uh, So, in other words, when, when FICA and everything else comes out of my payroll... 10% 10% gets pulled out and saved for retirement regardless of my desires one way or another. Right, exactly, a mandatory a mandatory system. Wow. Uh, and of course, you know, that won't that, that won't make a lot of libertarians happy. But uh, but then again, it's not fair for someone who doesn't save anything and then expects the state to take care of them at age 68 till 90. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, that that's really quite quite intriguing. So you write the wealthy are different than you and I. They have more ways of having their wealth stripped away from them. Explain. Well, uh, you know, when you become wealthy uh, in our society, it becomes quickly externally apparent. Uh, if you to, so choose to flaunt it in that way, I think the new generation is less uh, less likely to wear flashy 
watches and drive expensive cars. Yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, human beings are the are the apes who seek status. For sure, uh, and and it's it's and the good evolutionary reasons having to do why why people do that, and so when you become wealthy, you're basically painting a great big bullseye on your chest mm-hmm. uh, for the bad actors in the business, and the more wealth you display, uh, the more likely you know you are to get hit by one of these people. Huh, quite interesting. Your historical nonfiction works are very very different in tone and content than the investing in financial books. They appear to be deeply, deeply researched. Every page is uh, dense. In many ways, they they remind me of your namesake, Peter Bernstein, whose similar books, um, every page is just filled with so much information. What made you decide to start writing like this, like you are a full-time author? Well, When you start writing about finance, uh, you realize that the history is so very important. We got into that in one of the last uh, segments. Uh, you know, as Santiana famously said, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And nowhere is that more true than in in finance. And I discovered that I enjoyed writing writing history. In fact, it was the part of the books that I wrote that I decided uh, that I liked the most. And so, after I had written uh, two books of finance, The Intelligent Asset Allocator and The Four Pillars of Investing, uh, I approached my um, uh, then-publisher, uh, McGraw-Hill, and I said, I would like to write a book about the growth inflection uh, that occurred during the early 19th century, before, you know, about 1820 or so. Economic growth uh, in most nations was very close to zero, and then in the leading edge nations, the England, the United States, and most of Western Europe, growth rose to about two percent per year, which uh, you know compounded over the centuries has produced the enormous improvement in standard of living that we have. And I wanted to know why 1820, because you know the Industrial Revolution had had started almost a century before that. There was something else that was happening, and I wanted to write about that. So that was Birth of Plenty, which was modestly successful, and it also became a calling card mm-hmm. as well for that, that got the attention of, of other publishers. And then that led to a splendid exchange. Correct, yes. And Peter Bernstein gets into that story uh, because uh, a couple of years after I had written Birth of Plenty, I get this phone call from an acquisitions editor at Grove Atlantic by the unlikely name of Brando Skyhorse. Right. Uh, and <laughs> Brando, that's a phone. That's a message you'll take. Who? Yeah. yeah, put him through. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so he, he, he said, you, you know, we, we want you to write a book about the history of world trade. And I said three things. Number one, I don't know anything about it. Number two, I'm not interested in it. And number three, you've got the wrong Bernstein. Right. And and there was this sort of pregnant pause at the end of the line. And he said, well, we actually did have lunch with him uh, last week. And we offered him the book. And he said he was busy. He was busy writing his history of the Erie Canal. But Peter said, there's this other Bernstein. And that's, oh, how, that's, I got, that's how I got to write the book. That's very funny. This other Bernstein. That, that really is hilarious. So... This obviously has a whole lot of of work and research that went into it. What's the process like? How long did it take to research this? How long did it take to write it? A book like this takes about four years to write. Really? Yeah. And and the process is uh, you start by doing uh, just a truckload of 
reading. Uh, you know, when you when you write a book like this, you're probably reading about somewhere around fifty thousand pages right. uh, of material. And the analogy I like to use is it's kind of like you've got a, a puzzle, this enormous jigsaw puzzle to put together, and you're given ten thousand pieces. But you can only pick a thousand pieces to make the picture with, uh, so it's a difficult process, and it's it's a skill set I guess that not everyone has. But it's something you know is one of these things I discovered I I actually knew how to do, and it's an enormously enjoyable process. I've I've you know this particular book was quite successful. The book that I wrote after that was an absolute flop. Uh, it was on the media? Yeah, it was on the media. It was on the history of communications technology and media. But the point was is that I had just as much fun writing both and I feel just as good as I uh, about 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 both. If you don't enjoy the process, you should not be writing For, to to say the least. So when you say you read 50,000 pages uh, quick back of the envelope that's a hundred books at 500 pages each or something like that yeah of course you're not reading a hundred books what you're doing is you're climbing the bibliographic tree and you might read a few of those books all the way through but what in fact what you're really doing is you're reading lots of book sections just maybe a couple pages or even a paragraph or two from each source and then you're branching out into the bibliographic tree into mm-hmm. the reference sources and it's this tree that goes out several branches and you the nice thing about it is you you know when you're done when you keep coming back to the same sources over and over again when you reach that point that you're being referenced back to the same the same academic articles the same texts the same right. uh, secondary sources uh, you know that you're done let me throw a few questions at you from the book the world's greatest human cataclysm the plague the black death was the direct result of long established trading patterns. Explain that. Well, it's a it's a fascinating thing that epidemiologists like to talk about, which is that when you, at least his, medical historians like to talk about, which is that when you look at the world around the year 1000, you, you had these pools of people, these civilizations uh, and tribal societies that never communicated with each other, didn't, didn't talk, didn't deal with each other, didn't even know that they existed. And so they each developed their own gene pools that people outside that pool were totally uh, uh, vulnerable to. And so there is this organism called Yersinia pestis, the plague bacillus, which existed in uh, ground rodents. Uh, Ticks in, on rodents or, or fleas on fleas, rodents? Yeah, fleas, yeah, fleas on fleas on rodents. And the, the, the animal that, the, you know, back in that part of the world was an animal called the terabogen. Uh And the rat was, did, they didn't, they did, this fleas didn't learn to, to, to jump onto the rats until much later. Uh, and and this, you know, was was present in East Asia, Northeast Asia, uh, and probably in the Indian subcontinent as as well. And then during the 12th and 13th century, uh, you get a period of time called the Pax Mongolica, when the Mongol tribes uh, conquered territory all the way into Eastern Europe. And, Genghis and, Khan and that right, whole group. And the other Khans, yes. Mm-hmm. And and so they opened up trade, land trade routes. Uh, and of course, the, the, the fleas hopped a ride on the camels. Right. Uh, and they got to uh, a place called Kaffa uh, in, in, in Asia Minor, or actually in what's now the Ukraine. Uh, and and there's this terrible siege of Kaffa where the Mongols are are um, 
uh, besieging Kaffa, and they throw over, they catapult over the city walls these corpses. Uh, Biological were, warfare. Exactly. And that uh, that infects the Genoese traders, who then uh, uh, basically carried the disease first into, I believe, the port of Messina in 1346, and then within three years, a quarter to a third of the population of Europe was dead. The wow. damage in the rest of the world which much was much worse. Probably it killed as much as 90% of the people in the main ports of Egypt as well as in China. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that there is no indoor plumbing, there is no system of sanitation, and that filth and other things are, are continuing to be spread, or is that a different... Uh, that issue. wasn't that wasn't the mechanism of of the plague. It was more of an air 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 airborne uh, mm-hmm. disease. People would develop a cough and transmit uh, disease disease that way. And it was just very very rapidly uh, very rapidly spread, spreading. Now the thing that's really interesting is that we worry about international air travel and how rapidly diseases spread. But we've not seen anything nearly as deadly uh, as the plague, or for that matter, the, uh, the the influenza outbreak that occurred after 1918. And the reason is the danger is not mixing. It's not mixing that's the danger. So in so, other words, we now have a broader gene pool around the world, and we're more capable of fighting off. Uh, there are less new things that are specifically capable of doing damage for a to a different gene sub uh, subgroup. Is that right? Yeah, I think we're in a much safer world than we were. Uh, uh, you know, say, you know, say seven or eight centuries uh, ago. Um, and and we've also gotten to be, you know, public health authorities have gotten to be really good uh, at, uh, at disease prevention as well. We tend to think of stock and bond markets as a relatively recent historical phenomena. But you write there have been credit markets since human civilization first took root in the Fertile Crescent. In other words, thousands of years ago. Is that right? Well, sure. And and there's actually a trace of interest rates that goes back uh, at least 4,000 years and perhaps as much as uh, 5,000 years. Uh, you know, if you're a farmer, uh, a, sedent- a sedentary farmer in the uh, in Babylonia or Samaria, uh, uh, you need credit. You need to borrow money for farm implements and to build a house, but most importantly, to buy seed corn. Uh, and of course, you're not borrowing money. You're not even borrowing silver. What you're doing is you're borrowing uh, seed corn from your wealthier neighbor, and that uh, seed corn has a cost of capital, which so, is typically in 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 very primitive agrarian societies, it's probably about 100 percent per year. So, in other words, I bought borrow one bushel of of corn or wheat seeds, and in exchange, I return two. Is that is that about right? That's right. Or one calf, uh, and then a year later at calving time, you've got to return two calves. Huh. Quite quite interesting. Um, and that's capital. And that's considered capital in in those days. So now that's going backwards. Let me go forwards. One of the things you wrote was, trade almost always benefits the nation that engages in it, but only when averaged over the entire national economy, there will always be a minority hurt by evolving trade patterns, and they always call for protection. Sounds very similar to what's going on currently with this administration and its battle with China and others over trade practices. One of the things that is most satisfying about 
writing nonfiction is to come up with historical examples of modern phenomena that are three and four hundred years old and even thousands of years old. And there's this wonderful uh, story of these riots that swept London uh, in uh, around the year 1700, having to do with the uh, textile uh, trade, uh, where weavers stoned uh, and attacked uh, Parliament, the East India Company uh, offices, as well as the uh, the home of the governor of the East India. It was basically the Seattle riots, right. uh, you know, 300, 300 years ago. And the reasons uh, for it were exactly the same. They were people who were out of work. So, you know, clearly we're much better off now because of of trade, uh, you know, uh, and cut off trade, increase tariffs, and you're going to find yourself, you know, in the situation of the the Iowa soybean farmer who is going to lose his farm very shortly uh, because of the Trump uh, tariffs. Are you going to find yourself as a consumer uh, paying three and four times for your shirts and your electronics, what you're used to, or of automobile manufacturers whose costs uh, have gone up because of metals? Uh, tariffs. So clearly, trade benefits an entire the entire nation, and you saw that in reverse during the 1930s uh, with the uh, the trade wars that followed the, the Hawley Smoot uh, tariff. But there are always losers. Okay, mm-hmm. there are textile uh, workers who've lost their jobs. There are auto workers and steel workers who've lost their jobs. Uh, and you have to, you know, the the key to a successful global economy and a national economy is simply to have a system that compensates the losers. Uh, and to think that you know you can cut off trade and not compensate the losers, which is what this administration wants to do, I think is the height of folly. So, so when you say compensate the losers, traditionally that has been some sort of job retraining or new education. How else can we compensate people whose industries no longer exists. If you're a, a, a coal miner or if you're a furniture ma- manufacturer in the U.S., these jobs are going away. What should we be doing as a nation for th- the losers on that end? Really, the better way to say it is the people who are on the losing end of, of these international trade deals. Well, those are the first two things that you need to do. But you need a broader social welfare network you you know if you lose your job you shouldn't lose your health insurance mm-hmm. uh, we're the only know. nation in the world that does that exactly uh, you know we should increase do things that increase social mobility the United States in fact has the lowest social mobility uh, of any uh, developed nation if you are born into the bottom quintile uh, uh, of, of income the odds of getting into the top quintile of income are only six percent in the United States it should be 20% in a perfectly egalitarian system. Uh, in most developed countries, it's about 13%. Now, when you look inside the United States, it's very interesting. Uh, what you discover is that in Silicon Valley, for example, if you're born into the bottom quintile, the bottom fifth, uh, you have a European uh, chance of getting to the top quintile, about 13 or 14%. But if you're born into the bottom quintile in Alabama, you've got a 3% chance. Wow. What does that tell you? It tells you that people in Alabama are not investing enough in their young people. And so that's probably the primary thing we should be doing at base is we should be investing far more money in education. I I find it remarkable that the people who rail against the public school system and the money that we so supposedly waste in that system uh, will happily spend three and four times that amount every year on their to send their kids to private school. Mm-hmm. Quite quite interesting. You discuss how economic mobility has has is so low in the US 
it wasn't always the case. Wasn't there much greater economic mobility previously, especially the post-World War II era? Well, uh, just to give you one small, very anecdotal, very small example, my medical school tuition was $1,550 a year. I came out of medical school with almost zero uh, debt. Uh, good luck doing that today. Right. It's 200000 a year if it's anything. It's uh, it's quite, quite insane. Um, let's talk a little bit about Masters of the Word, how media shaped history from alphabet to the Internet. Uh, so there are a lot of really interesting uh, bullet points in, in this book. You make the case that Gutenberg did not change the world with the printing press, but in a slightly different way. Explain. It's a fascinating bit of, of technology, which is that, of course, he didn't invent the printing press. Uh, the, the Chinese and the Koreans uh, had it. They even had, the, the Koreans even had moving, alf, even had movable alphabetic type. What Gutenberg did was to make the production of that type much more efficient. If you think about running a printing press or printing a book, you're talking about literally owning hundreds of thousands of pieces of type. Uh, and if you're casting that individually via the pre-existing processes, that was something that was open only to, to governments. The, the Chinese government was able to do it uh, back then. There were some Korean printers who could do it, and that was about it. Um, Gutenberg invented an, a metal alloy process of casting that enabled a skilled typecaster, my favorite word, a typecaster, uh, <laughs> who, who could produce about three pieces per minute of alphabetic type and basically bring it down to the artisan level. So what Gutenberg did was he didn't invent the printing press. What he did was invent efficient the efficient production of movable alphabetic uh, type, which was a, a, a far more subtle invention. So here's another bullet point from, from Masters of the Word. You write, the fall of the Soviet Union resulted from a colossal error in radio production. Explain that. <laughs> well, the, the, the Russians uh, produced, mass-produced their radios uh, in, in, in a couple of, of factories. It was very centrally driven. And they made a mistake that the Nazis didn't make. The Nazis were smart enough when they made their radios. Uh, and, and the Nazi regime basically came into being pretty much at the dawn of popular radio in Germany. And they made sure that their radios were, were, were not tuned well enough to produce far and broadcasts. Right. Uh, and the Soviets didn't do that. The Soviets uh, built radios that allowed tens of millions of their citizens to get the BBC and Voice of America and Deutsche Welle. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was just a colossally, the sort of colossally <laughs> stupid thing you, you would only see in a centrally planned economy. Hmm, that's hilarious. So, so now one of the things you write about this in the sort of pre-social media days was that as more people get access to means of communication, the result tends to be more democracy. Do you still hold those views in, in the face of how much fake news, quote unquote, um, and, and the way Facebook has been weaponized to influence uh, elections? Do you, do you still hold those views? Or, or what are your thoughts about that change in, in social uh, media? 
I still believe the basic precept and the, the, the analogy that I like to use is that in the, the era of radio and television, it was so centrally controlled that getting into a fight with uh, the national powers that be, whether it was the media or the government or the government-controlled media, was like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Right. Uh, now both sides have guns. What I really didn't anticipate, and I, I don't think anybody anticipated uh, even five or six years ago, is that uh, you've you've enabled the worst players in our society, uh, and and that's the you know this industrial grade. Uh, that, that that's your phrase, by the way. Industrial grade. Uh, that yes. is correct. But it's true. It's not just run of the mill BS. It's manufactured at a very high level. Yeah, and 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 of course, there's there's this famous moral philosopher. Uh, n- named Harry Frankfurt, who will be known forever after for a little 68-page essay. He That's wrote right. On BS. On right? BS, yes. And what is BS? BS is is not just things that are necessarily false. Sometimes BS can actually be true. But it's just words that are spoken that have no reference and no intentional reference to the fact, the facts. And of course, you know, we've we've now enshrined that uh, in our commander-in-chief. The, the description I like best is we, we live now in a post-fact era, which kind of cracks me up because I don't believe there's such a thing as a post-fact era. Um, but here we are. And uh, can you stick around a bit? I have a ton more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with William Bernstein, author of such books as A Splendid Exchange and The Four Pillars of Investing. If you enjoy this conversation, well, come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things finance. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Bill, thank you so much for doing this. I, um, I've been looking forward to having this conversation. You and I have swapped emails over the years, and you've had some lovely things to say about this format. So I'm thrilled to finally get you in here, in the booth, and have this conversation. Can I, can I, can I say a lovely thing or two about your format? Uh, if, if you feel inclined. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, you know, there aren't very many people in this world that I actually envy, uh, but you're one of them. There, there, there are a few things that I enjoy more than talking to people have, who have interesting things to say, and that seems to me to be all that you, you do. Whoever you feel like talking to, you can get on this program. Don't, uh, and, don't let and anyone I, else know. That's yeah, my secret. Yeah. Yeah, and and I and I and I envy the heck out of out of the platform that uh, that you have and how you enjoy yourself. I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. My writing is for an audience of one, and this show effectively is for an audience of one. I've managed to 
con everybody into thinking that this is supposed to be a broadcast, but essentially it's me having a conversation that I want to have. Yeah, you, you get people to answer your emails who never answer my emails, and I am green with envy. Well, if I can help make an introduction, I would be happy to do that. <laughs> you're not, by the way, you're not the only person who said that to me. Some other people who I won't say on air, but I'll tell you privately, have said that to me, and it's really... Oh, really? So people have figured out that this is a giant self-indulgence and they wish they could do. See, if you weren't in Oregon, if you were in New York, you can wing something like this together. Um, other people have done this in a way. Mark Marin started in his garage in Los Angeles. And since he was a stand-up comedian for forever, he would con his comedian friends to come in. And that's blown up into this giant thing. So... There's something to just engaging in a little bit of self-indulgence and speaking to people you want to speak to. Yeah. One one thing, Barry, it's Oregon. You say Oregon too many Oregon. times. Oregon. You yes. say Oregon too many times. That's we... a band, actually. There was a band called Oregon, Oregon. and yeah. I that's where that comes from. Yeah, but you do it too many times, we take away your visa. <laughs> to come to uh, what's going on in, in Portland, Oregon. It's that That is a city that is now... Both booming and kind of completely out of control, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It's the, it's what happens to any city when when it becomes too popular, uh, and the cost of of residence, the cost of real estate goes up uh, as you get out of whack. Of course, you know we have you know the, the ultimate example of that is is San Francisco, which sure. has gotten to be this ludicrously bifurcated place that is populated, but with this you know bimodally on on you know there's this one peak of people to the to the right of the curve who who have you know math SATs of 750 and talk, can talk in differential equations and in finance and who are very well dressed and are spending you know nine dollars on avocado toast for for breakfast right. and then you've got the other 90 percent of people who are on the cusp of homelessness or are homeless speaking of which the west coast has far more homelessness then every time I'm out there, then I previously remember. And the last time I was in Portland, I was shocked at the number of people living on the streets. It's quite amazing. Yeah, serious, serious problem. There's one factoid uh, that I've seen repeated. I've not verified it, which is that if you take Los Angeles uh, out of the analysis, the homeless rate in the United States is actually falling. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so why Los Angeles other than the... Um, Weather allows you to live out there year round. Yeah, pro- uh, pro- probably just a, you know it's like any other complex social phenomenon. It's a list of factors: weather uh, and the the very high cost of of housing. Uh, it's it's geographically dispersed, so it can accommodate uh, a lot more homeless people without uh, making people too upset. Just a whole a whole range right. of, of and, things. Yeah, and the stat I saw that's so disturbing is. North of 50% of homeless people are suffering from some uh, mental or emotional disability, and because they're homeless, they don't have access to medical care or regular prescriptions. Yeah, if you you know if you if you dole out food in a in a homeless shelter, what you very quickly find out is there's three populations of people. Uh, one are substance abusers. Two right. are schizophrenics, uh, and, and three an equally large people and your group of people are people just like you and me who are working their rear ends off uh, and are extremely conscientious, but they got a bad draw. They uh, lost their job. They lost their health insurance. They became ill. Uh, they went bankrupt and they wound up living in their car. Huh. 
that, that's quite horrifying. And when we talk about lack of a social net, that's the group that seems to fall through the cracks. Although there are that many schizophrenics who are untreated and they all eventually become homeless. Is that is that the implication there? That's a really good question is, is to what percentage of, 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 of schizophrenics become homeless. It's a very high percentage of them. Really? Yeah. I mean, we, they're the ones who are most visible because those are the ones who are shouting at the top of their lungs as you, you know, walk by them on the street. Hmm. So, so there's a bunch of questions we did not get to during the broadcast portion, and I want to uh, run these by you before we get to our favorite questions. Some of these are really quite quite intriguing. Um, let, let's start with finance and then work our way through some uh, variations. When a, I'm going to give you a quote of yours. When a famous investor starts publishing a newsletter, it's a sure tip-off his investing techniques have stopped working. Discuss. Well, that's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, you know, if if you or I actually know how to reliably uh, beat the market, you're not going to tell anybody about it. You're not even going to tell your own mother uh, about it. You are going to leverage yourself to the hilt. You're not going to take anybody else's money. Uh, that's not that's not you, that you haven't borrowed yourself. And then when you're done, you'll go to the beach. Uh, <laughs> you're 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 sure is not. You're sure as heck not going to publish a newsletter and sell it for two hundred dollars a year. My my favorite part of the uh, Jim Simon's Renaissance Technology lore <laughs> is after a few years of the Medallion, um, their their flagship fund throwing off forty percent annually, they basically said to investors, "Listen, there's a finite amount of alpha here, and there ain't enough for you and me, so you got to go." And they returned all of the outside money, and now. Um, the Medallion Fund has been Renaissance Technology employees and Jim Simons. That's basically it. Forty percent a year for forty years, something like that. It's a it's a crazy crazy number. Um, speaking of crazy numbers, uh, I'm, I don't remember which book this is from, but this really um, blew my mind. An old master painting bought from the artist for a hundred dollars. And sold 350 years later for tens of millions of dollars, returns but 3.3 percent annually. Explain that. Well, it's 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 you know it's called the magic of compounding. Uh, you know, if you if you save and you have a decent rate of return, even a modest rate of return over hundreds of years, then you know you'll have a fabulous amount of money. But of course, you can't do that uh, because you're going to want to spend some of the money, let alone let it ride for three or four generations. Now, Ben Franklin did that. Uh, In what ben, way? Well, Ben Franklin set up uh, an investment portfolio, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm not aware of the details of it, but it was a portfolio that was designed to last some very long period of time and, and uh, benefit uh, uh, his charitable causes. And it actually did earn a decent rate of return over a period of more than a century and wound up being worth a lot of, of money. Uh, but huh. what, it, you know, what, what I like to say uh, about that is that, yes, if you, if you, if you put you know, $100 into stocks and then save it for, for, for 70 years uh, and invest it for 70 years, you're going to have a fabulous amount of money. But myself, I'd rather be 20 years old with a few with a few euros in my pocket on the boulevards of Paris uh, than be 90 years old with with millions of dollars. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I get the fire group of of people who think you should 
live like a pauper, pour every penny you have into the stock market for 10 or 15 years and then retire at age 40. And it just seems so wrong to me to to not enjoy life in your 20s and 30s. Who wants to live like that if you can avoid it? I tend to be, you know, I tend to be fairly sympathetic to the fire group, but it's it's a suspicious uh it's a suspicious group of people. A lot of these people were people who who were making six-figure incomes in the tech right. industry and then got to retire at age 33 or 35 with a giant pile of stock options too. Right, exactly. And and if that works really well as long as you don't have children or get sick. Right. That's right. And but there is something to be said for being able to enjoy and appreciate the work you do and ha- finding some some meaning and some value in your hourly labors and not just split wood and round up and water the horses and live the the life of a uh, hermit or or so it seems. Yeah, moderation in all things. That make that makes perfect sense. Um <laughs> So there's two others that were that really stood out. Um, I have a pet thesis I'll share with you in a moment. But you wrote, at a very early stage in history, we are encountering survivorship bias, the fact that only the best results tend to show up in history books. Explain. Well, there's a classic uh, example of that from World War II. Uh, sure, Ari Waldman and the the... Planes coming back, right? Shot exactly. Up. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, just for the readers who, listeners who haven't heard this, uh, when you when they when they analyzed uh, the bombers that came back from World War II and they looked at the patterns uh, of of the uh, of the shrapnel uh, uh, bullet damage, holes, gun yeah, holes. Yeah, they they found that there was there were areas that 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 didn't ever seem to get hit. And of course, the reason why they never get hit is when you got hit in a fuel tank, you didn't come back. Or, or the engine. If it hit the engine, you're not yeah. going to make the flight back. It's the same thing in in finance. Uh, you know, you you see the people who did well. You the, the thing that sticks in your mind is the guy who bought uh, Amazon or Microsoft on the IPO. But what you don't see are the other ninety nine percent of IPO uh, investors uh, who who did uh, who 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 had their heads handed to them. So there was. Um I, I call this the the lost and found stock certificate. There was a story in the papers. Uh, it's got to be a decade ago. Uh, Uncle Fred buys uh, some EMC and he gets the certificates, and it goes into a, a firebox and it gets stuck somewhere in the attic and nobody looks at it for twenty five years. And then they find the stock certificates and wow, it's worth six million dollars and it makes the paper and it's fascinating. But the reason that's so misleading is if you would have bought GM and and then GM subsequently declares bankruptcy or fill in the blank, Lehman Brothers or Pets.com or whatever, when he finds those stock certificates, nobody tells the newspaper, nobody writes a story. You don't hear about it. You only hear about the odd ones that, wow, a fortune was created. And that's pure survivorship bias. Yeah, and it's the same thing, you know, to a to a more subtle degree, but but a more important degree probably with with mutual funds. Uh, you, you know, there are there are there are mutual funds that have done very well uh, and have good long term records, have beaten the market. Uh, but you know, for every one of them, there are probably twenty or thirty that got euthanized by the fund family because they right. did so poorly. And you don't even see those in the record unless you have the right the right database. So that gets pulled out of the data, and it makes the surviving 
fund average look much better than it should be. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a much even bigger problem with hedge funds and private equity. About 25% of uh, hedge funds disappear each year because of that high watermark, right? It's 2 and 20, the 20% being 20% of the net gains above a previous high. So if you suffer a drawdown, you're not going to get that big fat 20%. So you're up and over, so they dissolve and start over, and it makes the numbers look much better than they right, should be. Right. So my my pet thesis on survivorship bias is that everybody's conception of the world is completely wrong. Everything we see is survivorship bias. When you look at a pen or when you go to a restaurant you like, which perhaps is the best example, how hard can running a restaurant be? You get a good <laughs> chef, you get a, a friendly hostess, uh, you get a little media buzz. You don't see the other, for each successful restaurant, you're not seeing the other hundred that have come and gone after six months at great expense and anguish. And uh, there's a reason it's a terrible investment. There's a reason films and plays are a terrible investment. Most plays are in Hamilton. So... Everything is survivorship bias. Yeah. And you know, you're talking about how doctors are such awful investors. I mean, doctors are certainly not the only uh, occupational category that's, that's uh, susceptible to that. I mean, entertainers uh, and sports figures in particular uh, regularly lose their, their shirts on restaurants. Uh, when you look at the bankruptcy statistics for especially NFL and NBA players, very, very high. It's it's a shocking, shocking number. Um, and then you know the one other book we didn't talk about um, was the ebook, the Deep Risk book. Was that an ebook or a print book? Well, I, I've produced four ebooks, uh, mm-hmm. actually five ebooks. Uh, one of them I give away for free. That's if you can, and it's actually probably the most widely distributed of my. If books. If you can, I've seen that. Yeah, it, it, which is a book for millennials, uh, and it's been you know, hundreds of thousands of downloads. Really, that's yeah. great. Because it's free, right? Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was an elemosinary uh, project aimed at millennials uh, who didn't have assets. And then I have three short booklets: uh, uh, "Deep Risk in the Ages of the Investor" and "Skating Where the Puck Was." And I sort of combined that and a bunch of other things into a uh, a newer version of Intelligent Asset Allocator called Rational Expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, which was published uh, four or five uh, years. Ago, so that's probably a book that's superseded the Intelligent Asset Allocator. It's basically meant for the same uh, math geeky kind of audience. And and you call this uh, investing for adults, something like yeah, that. Yes, the, the those five those five series or those five books, I, I sort of fold into what I call my invest investing for adults series, which is uh, you know it's for it's it is for investing adults, people who basically understand uh, market efficiency and who understand the relationship between risk and return, and know that there is no returns fairy and no stock picking fairy and uh, no market timing fairy. So, so when you say adults, you are not using that chronologically. You're using it in terms of being a sophisticated investor or at least an informed investor. Yeah. I've, I've met 15-year-old investing adults and I've met uh, 75-year-old uh, investing infants. I, I swear to God this is true. I used to get these emails all the time, uh, especially when I was doing a lot of television. And the email went something like this. I just inherited a million dollars. What I'm going to, or or a substantial sum of money, I'm going to give a hundred thousand dollars to five uh, different fund managers, and whoever generates the best returns, I'm going to give uh, my real money to. And it's like, why are you incentivizing people to take risks and hope they get lucky? 
you're you're not incentivizing anybody to manage your real money appropriately. They they don't understand that. It's a it's bad game theory. Or the other one, I'm looking for double the market performance, but with half the risk. I, I like that one also. That's an email I used to get all the time. <laughs> well, as soon as you find that, let me know. I have a billion dollars for you. But short of that, you're it, that's that's not really uh, that's not really going to happen. Um, since you're not taking money from people anymore, how does that change how you interact with the public through your site? Is it a different relationship? Do you get sort of crazy emails like that? What what is what's what do you see flowing to you from that uh, efficient frontier site? Oh, I, I intentionally uh, make my email address opaque. Uh, if you it's go, there, you it, can hunt it down. You can hunt it down, uh, and it basically makes you feel bad if you email me. It's, it's, <laughs> it's one it's one that's for press only, and that basically scares away ninety nine percent of of people who want to to run me down. Uh, the people who want to run me down and who actually go for that email are people simply who've who've read my books they don't want information they just want to thank me really uh, and that's that's yeah that's the that is you know about once a week i get an email from someone that says you know you saved my life thanks so much that's and delightful that's, yeah and it's it's you know it's 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 better than the royalties yes i i would certainly say so um before we get to our favorite questions i had one last question to ask you and that's the biggest distraction what is the biggest distraction investors run into Oh well, it's just the entertainment uh, aspect of of investing. It's the it's the CNBC uh, uh, market uh, environment. Uh, the idea that that what's going to you know where the market's going next year, or what company uh, is producing the best product, or what country has the hottest economy, uh, it's it's uh, what Jane Bryant uh, Quinn called uh, financial pornography. <laughs> so here's the quote of yours relevant to that. Ninety-nine percent of what you read about investing in magazines and newspapers, and a hundred percent of what you hear on television, is worse than useless. Is, are you overstating that, or is that pretty much a, a, a decent set of figures? Oh, I mean, if you really ask me, I'll tell you what I really think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean that's true. I, the way I like to put it is that CNBC, uh, at base, wants to make you poor and stupid. So that's a different website, the conspiracy to make you poor and stupid. I I used to jokingly say, um, you know, you don't walk into a doctor's office and have General Hospital playing on the television. (laughs) If you did, you would run screaming from the room. And my pet theory is each of the financial channels reflects their parent company. So Bloomberg is a data services company. Bloomberg Television is all about charts and data and graphics. NBC is an entertainment company, so CNBC becomes all about entertainment. And then Fox Business is is their parent company is Fox News, so it's all about politics and tribalism and partisan warfare. And each of the financial channels just reflects what the ethos of the parent company is. God, and I, I thought Fox Business was about anchors and short skirts. No, no, that's generally across the whole line is that when you look at some channels more than others, um, sex sells, and, and especially when you're marketing to a primarily male audience, I don't know if it's still a primarily male audience, but that sort of 90s thing, the pre-Me Too era, 
that doesn't seem to have changed very much in the no, past couple of years. Not, it's, not, not, not environment. Um, the, the words you don't read anymore is leggy blondes anchor people, but pretty much that's mostly what it continues to be, right? I'm, I'm, I've read descriptions like that in magazines, and it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, if I can get all wonky on you, you know, you asked about the, the return on art. And the reason why the return on art is so low is because it has an entertainment segment part of the return as well. And this is work that, you know, Bill Bommel at uh, NYU very famously uh, did, uh, which- Bill Bommel, B-A-U-M-O-L? Hell yeah. Uh, in which he looked, you know, he actually has a return series of, of art going back uh, centuries and found that on average, it's got a lower return than stocks and bonds because part of its return is is an entertainment return. So, if you want huh. entertainment from investing, you are going to pay for it. You're going to uh, get a lower return courtesy of the entertainment. Exactly. The investment you want is the one with zero investment, uh, excuse me, zero entertainment uh, return, uh, which leaves more room for the investment return. Right. So, it's, it's I, I always advise people who can't pull the needle out of their arm, set up a, a, a fun account of 5% keep it in a different custodian from your real money. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, thank goodness it was only 5%. And it's sort of like a, a little bit of insurance so people aren't day trading their retirement. But that's basically what happens. Yeah, same advice that I give. Yeah. Really? Really? That's quite, <laughs> that's, that's quite interesting. It makes me feel good that that's the, uh, that's the right approach. So let's go to our favorite questions. We ask these of all our guests. Starting with, what was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? <laughs> it was uh, a uh, 1972 blue, eight, eight, baby blue Fiat 850 Spider, purchased at the factory in Milan for $1,885. Wow. Uh, and it needed to be tuned every 3,000 miles. It was both- Tuned, not oil changed, but full tune-up. Full right? tuned, yes, every 3,000 miles. And Fix it again, Tony. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, you also have another question about what's one of the what are the biggest mistakes you've made, and and when did you learn from them? And right. it was both it was both an enormous joy, and you know, ever since then, I've owned Japanese cars. <laughs> that that makes a perfect sense. You know, we, you talk about art. Every now and then, I'll see a column somewhere about if only you had bought the Ferrari two fifty. It's worth ten million dollars today. It initially cost five thousand. Here's the return. It's like, well, what about all the other cars that came out that year that you could have bought and didn't? It's just a pure exercise in survivorship bias. Yeah, and, and the Fiat, you will not, you will, you can't, you, will, <laughs> you, you can't find a Fiat eight fifty Spider now, almost for love or money. You can, but they don't cost very much. They're very hard to find because none of them ever lasted that long. <laughs> That's right. So, what's the most important thing that people don't know about you? That was a that was a tough one, but what I came up with is that only the people who know me the very best understand how easily bored I am. Uh, I'm the kind of person who likes being on the steep part of the learning curve. Uh -huh. So most people, most people in medicine find neurology fascinating, and I did too for uh, about you know ten relatively short years, and then I got bored with it. And it's the same thing with you know all the other things I've done with my life. Is you know I've written a history about world economic growth. I've studied finance. Uh, I, I've written about world trade. Now I'm writing about human irrationality. Uh, 
and and you know I, I just enjoy reading new things. For me, what I like what I like to say is that uh, is that uh, writing is just a, a way of organizing my reading properly in an interesting mm. manner, and it's a good it's a, it's a fun way of staying on that steep part of the learning curve. To so, always be always be learning new things. So you you're going to be writing on human rationality. You obviously use behavioral economics in in a lot of the work you do in finance. Um, and you are a neurologist. There's a subsection of behavioral economics that some people have called neurofinance, where you're really looking at what's going on within the brain, within the um, endocrine system. Is that right? The right well, way yeah. to describe you, it? You're talking about the, a lot of the work that gets done with functional imaging, particularly, right, MRIs, functional, MR, right. particularly functional MRI. And I, I think it's overdone. It's become way too huh. fashionable. Uh, you know, As important as the Kahneman and Tversky work is, uh, I think it has its relevance to finance, although it's great, is not as great as as an area that I think is relatively ignored, and that's evolutionary uh, psychology. Mm -hmm. Uh, We behave in certain very irrational ways, and it's nice to be able to identify the ways in which we're irrational, which is what Kahneman and Tversky are justifiably famous for. But if you just read Kahneman and Tversky, you don't understand uh, what is in back of that behavior. To give you a small example, um, you know, the fundamental characteristic that we have that we've already mentioned is that humans uh, imitate, or in finance we say that humans herd. Right. Why do humans herd? Well, if you think about it, the easiest way to think about that is to think about the history of our species in the Western Hemisphere over the past, depends upon what archaeological record you believe, between fifteen and 50,000 years. Uh, and over a period of a very few thousands of years, maybe three or 5,000 years, humans spread from the high subarctic uh, in Alaska and the Yukon all the way down to the southern tip of South America, which has a not very dissimilar climate. And on the way, they had to learn how to make kayaks. Right. Uh, they had to learn how to make poison darts. Uh, they blow guns. They had to learn how to hunt bison uh, on the Great Plains. Uh, and you can't learn how to do any of those things on your own. If each individual person had to learn how to do all of those things on their own, they'd have very quickly become lunch for, for a predator. <laughs> uh, and so you find the one person who learns how to build the kayak, make the blowgun, hunt bison, and then you imitate what that person does. So we are the species that imitates. We are the ape who imitates. And once you understand that, uh, a lot of uh, economic activity, and particularly behavior and finance, becomes a lot more understandable. So am I grossly oversimplifying this? Because I've looked at the same thing from an evolutionary standpoint, and I always thought, hey, primates are a... um, they're uh, a herd creature. They're a, I don't know what it's called for monkeys, a, a tribe, troop. a troop of monkeys or or whoever, of chimps, and that the reason we care about social um, status is that we want to be part of the group. If you're not part of the group, you can't survive on your own. And so only those creatures that can herd play well with others that can be part of the group end up being self-selected to pass their genes on if you're... A contrarian, if you're an outlier, if you're uh, a, a chimpanzee that isn't really going to be core to that social group, you're probably not going to get a mate. You're not going to pass those genes along. Am, am I oversimplifying or bastardizing that, or is that just further back in our, our conversation than 
Um, that's three million, not thirty thousand years ago. Yeah, you, you. Well, that that's that that goes way back, and you know, right. as you say, it's it's millions and millions of of years ago. We seek status because it enables us to better to make babies better, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you're if you're male, and particularly if you're a male bull, you know, bull elephant seal, for example. Right. Uh, but you know, human beings have that. Have have that same basic mechanism operating. That is why we seek status. It's just a way of uh, forwarding our, our DNA. Uh, NYU's and- uh, Scott Galloway talks to, about watches. He goes, everybody has a, a phone that's far more accurate than an expensive timepiece, but it's a way to signal that I can afford to um, take care of you and your offspring, and therefore these have not yet gone away. Yeah, it's the Birkin, it's the Birkin bag exactly. Mm-hmm. And it just shows um, ability to take care of uh, uh, the next generation. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It shows that it shows that you're able to to muster resources. It's a signaling, uh, a signaling uh, mechanism. Exactly. So, so who are some of your early mentors? Who affected the way you uh, practice medicine, and then who affected the way you practiced uh, finance? Well, uh, it's really difficult to point out. Uh, uh, who you know? At some at some point, I decided I loved neurology, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess uh, there were some uh, junior and chief residents who who I glommed onto in my when I was in medical school, and I, I enjoyed the way they they approached patients, and I enjoyed the the uh, the, the craft of neurology. Uh, you know, and I can think of a, a couple of names that no one will recognize, but they were basically my. You know, when you're a medical student, uh, a junior and a senior resident in a subspecialty field is a god, right. uh, and 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 so those are the people you tend to imprint upon. Uh, and then there was, you know, several different. You know, several different groups of people. The one person who certainly a mentor to me was my wife, uh, who was an English major and she knew how to write, and and she taught me how to 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 write. Uh, Did she edit your early work? She edits my early work and my middle work and my late work. She just I will not send anything to a publisher without having her look at it. Huh? Uh, and you know, she's she's that good. Uh, and then as far as you know, finance goes and finance. Uh, writing, uh, there was a person I've already spoken about, Frank Armstrong, who encouraged me. Another person was Scott Burns, uh, who was a writer for the Dallas Morning News, who still writes and still also manages money, who told me very forthrightly that I had what it took to be a financial writer, uh, that I was good with numbers and I, I could write pleasing prose. And he, he said that, that I should pursue that. And then two other people who helped me greatly along the way were John Rakenthaler, who's chief of research at Morningstar, sure. and Jonathan Clements uh, of the Wall Street Journal, who very early on took uh, an interest uh, in me. And then there are the people who you know I had only a very glancing knowledge of, or almost no knowledge of at all, but who's writing affected me. And of course, that's the holy trinity of, of Bogle uh, and Malkiel uh, and Fama. Mm-hmm. If we if we're going to do a Mount Rushmore, all three have to go up. Yeah, and, and I got to know Jack Bogle a little bit personally, uh, not very well. Uh, and then the other two, I well, and then and then Gene Fama, I do not don't really know at all. And I've become friends uh, to with with John Rakenthaler at all. He's enormously uh, helped. Was enormously uh, helpful to me. I, I've been trying to get Fama in here for a long time. So if you ever do happen to be, befriend him, send him my way. <laughs> He's, uh, I've had the other half of uh, that Nobel Prize. I've had Schiller in here. But Fama remains elusive and is only rarely glimpsed in the wild. 
he he does not uh, have much of a public uh, face. So you mentioned the writers that influ- influenced you. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, finance-related, whatever. Well, fiction-wise, I don't read that much fiction, but there are two people who I... Or, or popular writing, I should say, that I read compulsively, and one of them is Jean Le Carre, uh-huh. uh, and the other is Michael Lewis. Uh, you know, how often... Nonfiction. Michael Lewis is nonfiction. Nonfiction. He's nonfiction, of course, right. yeah. And, and how often, you know, have we, both you and I had the experience of reading an article somewhere, New York or Atlantic, right. uh, wherever, and you say, God, this is this is really good. I wonder who wrote this, because you didn't really pay attention to who wrote it. And you go back and you slap your forehead, and of course it was Michael Lewis. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it a step further. I always know who I'm reading. I I no longer read mastheads. I don't read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Atlantic or whatever. I read different authors. This is part of my reading evolution. And so I will read everything that Dan Gross or Michael Lewis or Jesse Isinger or go down the list. Um, so I have a tendency to read. I, I cannot recall the last time I've experienced who wrote this. Oh, of course. It, it's... I. I personally, but I spend a lot of time on the internet and it's a fire hose. So to make that manageable, I I try, there are people who, whatever they put out, and certainly Michael Lewis is one of them, whatever they put out, I I just have to read it. Yeah. And then, and then there are the three, you know, the three great books that I recommend to everybody. Uh, Number number one uh, is Expert Political Judgment by Phil Tetlock. Sure. Uh, you know, about how, what lousy forecasters we are, what mistakes we make, and, you know, his section on, on the, on the, on the nexus between the media and pundits is 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 required reading sure. for everybody. Uh, there is a book called uh, "The Moral Animal" by a man by the name of Robert Wright, uh, which gets to the heart uh, of uh, the origins of religion and morality and of human behavior. It's it's a book basically about evolutionary psychology. It's like Tetlock. It's a very dense book. And then finally, there's a book which is e- well, it's both easier and more painful to read. Which is a book uh, by a British documentarian called Lawrence Rees, R E E S, called Auschwitz: A New History, and it is about the camp personnel who worked at Auschwitz and how they did what they did, uh, why they did it, and it basically explains to you Arendt's. Uh, famous banality of evil. The Germans were not exceptional. They were not an exceptional right. evil people. Uh, they were just uh, convinced by everybody that the Jews were vermin. What do you do to vermin? Uh, and what I tell everybody that I that I meet uh, these days is that it's a very short throw from vermin to rapists and murderers. Sure, uh, uh, absolutely. It's it's. I think that one of the things that have been revealed by the gaslighting we've seen over the past few years is that it's not hard to fool a huge swath of the population into doing unthinkable things. It's it's shockingly easy. Yeah, it, it, any any people any people can do it. Uh, uh, any you know one of the one of the most shocking things, uh, most things that will stick in your memory from from the Rees book is that. British officials in the Channel Islands, which were taken over by the uh, the Germans, uh, 
gladly handed over Jews to the Nazis. The Brits during the Brits, World War II. The Brits during World wow, War II. Wow, astonishing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's also very useful when you're thinking about financial fraud and financial malfeasance. If you understand Auschwitz, it's very easy to understand what happened in Enron. Mm-hmm. Everybody bought into the whole company thing, and despite obvious uh, indicia of fraud, they managed to overlook it. Um, I know you mentioned the fiat was a failure, but let's talk more professionally. Tell us about a time you failed and, and what you learned from the experience. Well, you know, the last two nonfiction books that, that have been published and sold were one was A Splendid Exchange, which succeeded beyond my wildest uh, expectations in terms of reviews, sales, uh, the speaking gigs it continues to get me. Uh, it was just wildly successful. And then the book that came after that, Masters of the Word, which we talked briefly about, uh, was an absolute flop. I doubt it sold 5,000 copies. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, and and what that taught me is just how capricious publishing is. Are you it, equally satisfied with the final product? That's the whole point, is is I had just as much fun writing both of them. I'm just as proud of, of, of both of them. And, and what it taught me is that you can spend three or four years writing a book, and it can disappear almost without a trace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the exercise wasn't worthwhile, because hopefully you're writing books for other reasons. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not writing books or researching in the library? Well, um, you know, uh, I, I lead, I'm afraid, a very ordinary life. I'm your basic septuagenarian uh, who enjoys his children and his grandchildren and traveling uh, while I, I still can. Uh, I, 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 I enjoy living in Portland, Oregon more than I can imagine, uh, mm-hmm. more than you can imagine. I live in a place where I can walk downtown and be there in 15 minutes, or I can walk 20 minutes uphill and be in a sequoia grove right. uh, and, you know, have 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 first-class croissants and uh, and baguettes right out my front door. The food in Portland is outstanding. I don't know if people realize that that should be on the foodie City circuit. The, every time I'm there, I come away. Wow, that was a, <laughs> it was really amazing restaurants. We have an office in Portland. It's really astonishing the the food there. Yeah, so I I love that, and of course, you know the the things that that I that I really enjoy doing are are the the, the research the 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 uh, the process of putting a book together. It is just great fun uh, under uncovering these stories that almost no one knows about. So, so what's the next book that's going to be coming from you? The next book will be a modern remake, if you will, of uh, Charles Mackay's famous Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds, or mm-hmm. actually Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds. Right. Uh, which, that's got to be so much fun to, to dive into. Oh, yeah. And, and it's a book, basically, that covers finance, of course, the three great bubbles uh, of the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, as well as a lot of religious manias. Uh, and so that's what this book is. It's, it combines three things, is financial manias, religious manias, and then the neuropsychology, and particularly the evolutionary psychology that glues all of them together. One of the things that I learned from my colleague Ben Carlson, who I know you know, was that the Japanese um, bubble that popped in 1989 made the NASDAQ bubble in 2000 look like child's play. It was 
like five or ten x what the Nasdaq bubble was. It's it's stunning. Yeah, the the Nikkei peaked very close to forty thousand, and I think that it's at its nadir. Uh, it was somewhere around five thousand, yeah. and I don't know what it is now, but it's on, somewhere in the mid teens right now, I think. But Maybe. it was it was the equivalent of the S and P five hundred during the dot coms was about 32 times. I think the Nikkei was 100 times earnings at its peak, or even very, worse. Yeah, very, 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 very close to that. And that's what you know. people always talk about, my gosh, can the U.S. stock market experience uh, uh, what happened to the Japanese stock market post-1989? And the answer is, it did, of course, uh, in 1929 to 32. Was the, was the multiple that wildly uh, out of whack? No, but the market fell by 88%. Sure. Uh, the S and the, the the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell by about eighty eight percent, so it was the same order of magnitude of fall. The reason why I think it's unlikely we're unlikely to see anything like that happen to the U S market and why it's more believable in Japan is simply because you know in nineteen ninety nine we only had a PE of like well it's trailing PE I think of forty and a cape of thirty or maybe it was the other way around a cape of forty and a trailing PE of thirty, whereas now we're at a trailing PE of somewhere around. 20 and a trailing cape of somewhere around what 30 I believe something like that yeah yeah uh, so you know it's much more believable that that happened in Japan that it'll happen to us and, and the cape um, I, I, the the rub on the cape these days continues to be it it's just gives you some insight into forward expectations not a timing mechanism it's it's been overvalued since 93 something like 88% of the time yeah the, the wonky finance way of saying it is that it's not a stationary parameter okay meaning that if you just look at how it works uh, out of sample it works very poorly out of sample in sample it works mm-hmm. but if you do for example what um, what uh, Staunton Marsh and Dimson did which is to look at it at, at the uh, say the dividend yield uh, in multiple countries, and then you just stop the analysis each and every year. You look back uh, and you devise a set of rules, depending on, you know, that are based on looking back at a given point. And then you look how it does forward. It does very poorly going forward in all in almost all countries. The one thing that that does work is is timing within countries, but that's a different subject. Hmm. So so out of sample is a big warning. Uh, yeah. To to take the cape with a whole lot of uh, grain of salt. Exactly, because you don't you don't know what the future distribution is going to look like. All right. So our final two questions. If a millennial or recent college graduate came to you and said they're looking for advice about going into either medicine and neurology or finance and writing, what sort of advice would you give them? <laughs> medicine is a much surer way of making a living than writing is, that's for sure. Uh, I, I would I tend to look at writing as something you do to amuse yourself in your dotage, uh-huh. uh, it's 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 fun. But if if you've got kids to raise and colleges to pay for, I I wouldn't become a writer. I would choose uh, a much uh, more solid profession. Live modestly, uh, and then you know you can you can kick back and follow your bliss and write if you feel like. Are, are I've asked a number of doctors this question, and I'm curious as to your view. If your kids came to you and said they wanted a career in medicine when they were younger, 
would you have encouraged or discouraged them? Yeah, I would. I would encourage anybody who wants to go into really? medicine. To, it's it's a very rewarding profession, and uh, it's 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 a much more difficult profession than when I was in it because of all the bureaucracy, right? Insurance and, and, and what have yeah, you. Yeah, and, and and not only that, but you know, back in the day, you could work for yourself. Now you'll almost certainly be working for the NBA from hell. Right. Uh, <laughs> even even so, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a fine profession. That offers rewards that nothing else, that no other professions will provide you with. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew when you first started out 20, 30 years ago? Well, there's this parlor game that academics like to play about how risky are stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've all heard the rationales of you know how, how they get risky or less, more or less risky with time and that how that argument goes back and forth. But what I've learned that I wish I knew back then is that it's a stupid question to ask without also adding for a given investor of a given age. Mm-hmm. All right? So, if you are a 20-year-old saver who has a lot of human capital and no investment capital- And a 50-year time horizon. Stocks aren't the least bit risky. In fact, you should get down on your knees and pray for volatility and low returns. Right. All right? Uh, but once you know, you're approaching your, your geezerhood, uh, stocks <laughs> are, are three-mile island toxic. And right. you should be very approach them with, with a great degree of caution. So, I wished I had known when I was 30 years old that I could put uh, 100% of my savings into stocks and not worry at all about them. That makes perfect sense. Bill, thank you so much for doing this. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Bill Bernstein. He is the author of numerous books. Uh, Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you pick up your books and you can see any of the dozen or so um, offerings he has. And I highly recommend any or all of them of Splendid Exchange um, is really fascinating. And because of that, I'm going to have to go get your book on uh, on media and words. I, I was, You said it came and went so quickly. I don't even recall seeing that book come out. But this one I remember um, getting as soon as, uh, as it was published. So th- thank, you, uh, thank you for your time. Um, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the past five years. Um, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my audio engineer slash producer. Michael Boyle is our producer slash booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.